Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the double-edged double bill, where you get two film and or media discussions for the price of one, which is nothing. week adam thomas and thomas mariani will come to the table to randomly select the yin and yang of a double feature one will have two good movies the other two bad ones both will have to choose a number between one and ten in order to seal their fates for each episode let the chaos begin i am adam thomas the final chapter and i am thomas mariani the revenge of the dawn of the reckoning of the return of michael myers there you go <laughs> so in case you couldn't tell in, in honor of this week we uh the nun is coming out and we were going to do spin-off movies a bit behind the curtain but we realized it's kind of hard to quantify that so we decided to say screw it we're doing sequels doing it. <laughs> yes uh so uh for those of you who don't know each week we come to the table with it two good and two bad movies we switch up on the quality and neither of us is aware of the other one has for their two picks and we pick a number between one and ten Whichever comes closest to the other's numbers that they've assigned will be both a good and a bad feature for the week. Adam has the two good movies. I got the two bad ones. And they're all, the only qualification is that they were sequels. So this could go any which direction whatsoever. Yes, sir. So give me your number. I'm going to go with number two. Number two. At number one, I had Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Oh, wow! Great! Yes. At number seven, I had Avengers Infinity War. Oh, not quite so as good. <laughs> oh, really? See, I liked it. But I tried to keep something new and something a little older. Yeah, I mean, I like Avengers Infinity War, but it's Crusade, though. Last Crusade. Yeah, it's Last Crusade, man. It's the Last Crusade, dude. <laughs> like, you can't even argue it. It's great. Well, no, speaking of arguing really. things. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to do this. Um, <laughs> fuck. Okay. I'll go with number five. Right down the middle. Okay. At number six, we have the sort of spiritual, but still a sequel to the Rocky Horror Picture Show, Shock Treatment. Oh, you motherfucker. <laughs> I know how much you love musicals, Adam. Oh, god damn it. <laughs> It's a double whammy for me, you son of a bitch. <laughs> wow, um, what was the other one? Well, at number nine, I did have Jaws the Revenge, which I'm sure you wouldn't have wanted to watch either. No, no, I wouldn't have. <laughs> oh, fuck, shock treatment. Oh, no. <laughs> well, uh, uh, we'll, we'll uh, can, this is a to-be-continued, will Adam survive this double feature? No. How much are we going to gush over Sean Connery? How bald is Richard O'Brien? Find out in just a moment. Indiana Jones is on the quest of a lifetime. But for some adventures, one Jones is not enough. Dad? Junior? Don't call me that, please. Follow me! I know the way! Ah! 
Nazis. I hate these guys. Germany has declared war on the Jones boys. Those people are trying to kill us. I know, Dad! It's a new experience for me. Happens to me all the time. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Have the adventure of your life. Keeping up with the Joneses. And we are back from our rousing, adventurous double feature. An odd double feature, to say the least. Uh, Vaguely connected by the fact that they're sequels. And some are even dubious with the terms of the sequel part of it. Yeah. Uh, Let's start with our good feature here. uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. This is the second sequel in the Indiana Jones uh, series. It was the third in what was the trilogy for a while. And then we got another sequel. Um, and we're supposed to get another one, evidently, in the next few years, uh, to everyone's, eh? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, that's even putting a positive spin on it. I mean, come on, man. Ugh. Well... Notre- Ugh, go ahead. <laughs> I'm going to get all worked up already. Well, well I'll say this much. Uh, if it's anything it, similar to what the sort of situation is with this entry in the franchise, then I, I think it might turn out well, because the backstory of uh, Last Crusade was that, obviously, we had Raiders of the Lost Ark in 1981, and then 1984, we had Temple of Doom, uh, which was not very well received at the time, um, still has a lot of detractors for acceptable reasons, uh, given some of the stereotypes and such that are in that movie, and Willie Scott, there are a lot of problems with it. Steven Spielberg decided to do this third entry. Uh, mainly because he and George Lucas kind of agree that they kind of wanted to do something to sort of make up for Temple of Doom. I'm not a huge detractor of Temple of Doom, but I think th- it's clear that there was a huge improvement from there to here. Would you agree? I feel the same way about Temple of Doom. There's parts about it I don't like, but there's a lot of parts about it I do like. But yeah, in comparison to Last Crusade, I mean, there is no comparison. Last Crusade's closer in tone to Raiders, for sure, than Temple was. Well, and plus, the Nina Jones character is definitely a lot similar, because a big thing most people forget about Temple of Doom is that it's technically a prequel. It does take place about a year before Raiders of the Lost Ark does, chronologically, right at the opening, they do... Uh, mention that. So that Indiana Jones is a bit less of, like, the roguish but still charming guy who you can see having the connection to Marion versus, you know, his relationship with Lee Scott, and for some reason he has Short Round. I, know, I don't know what happened between Temple of Doom and Raiders chronologically, to where Short Round just left. Just, like, he fucking right. die or something? I, I'm guessing he just, like, <laughs> died from some sort of adventure uh, of any sort. <laughs> You you have uh, Last Crusade, and it is definitely very similar tonally. Um, there's obviously a lot more sort of direct callbacks, because with the Indiana Jones franchise, they're more like the Bond franchise, which is interesting considering uh, Harrison Ford's co-star of Sean Connery. Um, but they do have less continuity, though there are obviously references and certain characters pop back up in here. But uh, do you think you still feel like sort of a, more of a tether in this one than you do in some of the other entries? Yeah. Um, you know... Kingdom, and now it is Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Yes. Doesn't even feel, to me, like a proper sequel. Yeah, I know Harrison Ford's in it, and so is Marion, and all that. Still, though, it was just, that was just so piss poorly done. And then, uh, I mean, it, it's really just hard. Shia LaBeouf swinging through the trees was just the nail in the coffin. I'm like, all right, yeah, I'm done with this. Even though, you know, the very beginning fridge nuking should have been the start of it but yeah no it, it's just 
to me, there's Raiders and then this, and then that's about it. I'd say out of the four, we got two good ones, if not great movies. Honestly, I do kind of like battle between Raiders and Last Crusade to sort of my favorites of the Indiana mm. Jones franchise. I think mainly because this does what a good sequel should do, which is obviously have certain things that, you know, work about the franchise, like indie fighting Nazis, obviously, and a lot of the sort of bigger stunt sequences do definitely feel more in line with Raiders. But even then, it does introduce something new that does give you a bit more about sort of Indiana Jones' character, which is his relationship with his father, Henry Jones, as played here by Sean Connery. And that dynamic is something that is really interesting for the franchise because uh, you have a love interest with the Allison uh, Duty character um, who is a, a femme fatale more than she is really a love interest mm. um, but she's great honestly I, this watch really made me appreciate her just sort of like the more kind of complex love interest role that um, is a bit more developed than definitely Willie Scott and even to a certain extent Marion yeah I'd say so I, I agree uh, I mean I still personally uh, definitely prefer Marion. It's just it's, it's fucking Karen yeah. Allen her prime. Yeah, yeah, she's the ultimate, you know, badass too in these movies. Like, I mean, she's basically Indy's equal, just in different ways. Mm-hmm. But no, I, I definitely dug the love interest in this one, especially because it wasn't an overblown sappy love interest. And halfway through the movie, you know, you find out what what's really going on with her, and, and don't really pursue the love interest angle of it anymore until the very end. Mm-hmm. And it also lends itself to good comedy bits between um, Sean Connery and Harrison Ford. Like she both. talks in her sleep. Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love it. But what I really like about Sean Connery is obviously despite that sort of Lothario angle, she, he's, he's a lot more sort of, you know, bookwormish and a worrier and not as much of like an actual adventurer, which is something I wish he kind of pursued more in his later career because it was like this and Untouchables really brought him back to like A-list star status that he had yes. back in the 60s. And it seems like he went more for untouchables in terms of being more of like a badass older gentleman. And I think that was honestly more of a mistake in his later career when you got to stuff like First Night and other shit that wasn't that great in the 90s. I wish he did more stuff like this where he clearly has like an intelligence about him and an arrogance, but at the same time, there is something lovable and charming underneath all that. This is really, for me what I think of Sean Connery as, because I think this was my really introduction to Sean Connery as an actor. I really was not, I didn't get into the James Bond stuff until way later post childhood, really. But this is to me sort of quintessential, charming, fun, roguish Sean Connery performance. This is probably one of my favorite Connery performance as well. Absolutely. In fact, thinking back on him, I, I like him in this, like the hunt for red October. He was really good. The untouchables. But then it's like, you got Zardoz. <laughs> but, then, but then he got, like like you said, later in his career, the, the movie that killed his career, rightfully so. I mean, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Mm-hmm. Where he's just so old and frail, but still trying to throw punches and look like the badass. Where if he would have just stayed on the route, like here with Henry, I think he would have just, just probably still been going today. 
it's more of like he appreciates his age, but at the same time he's able to have fun, clever moments like the seagull bit is great. That's a wonderful moment of really like a connection between those two. Uh, but mm-hmm. also even, I think the moment that really stood out to me this time was when they're in the um, the motorcycle with the little buggy thing on the side and yeah. Indiana Jones takes out a couple Nazis and he's smiling and Sean Connery just takes out his pocket watch and starts winding it unimpressed. I completely oh, forgot I, about that bit. It's such so a great, great bit. <laughs> I love that bit. My favorite bit is when they're in the play that uh, Sean Connery takes out the tail fed. They got us. Yeah. yeah. More or less Sean <laughs> and when he chases away the birds with the umbrellas, I mean, it, it does genuinely feel like a father and son team too, mm-hmm. um, an estranged father and son. Like even the bit where he's like Jesus Christ and he slaps him, mm-hmm. you, you know, just it, it was just done so well. I just wish they there would have been another sequel, maybe a little bit closer to the release of this one, so we could get a little bit more of those two as a duo instead of in Crystal Skull just a throwaway picture. To give a lot of credit to Harrison Ford, I think this is like such a, a great Indiana Jones performance from him because it's along with being sort of the big adventurer, which I'm sure he gave less of a shit about. It's more about that dynamic between him and Connery, and especially the scene where they're on the blimp and they talk about how like you didn't do anything with me. It's like I respected your privacy, and <laughs> and, and the whole thing is like, well, well, I, we never talked at all. Well, what do you want to talk about? And he just has that still like. I honestly don't know. What are you so upset about? Like, that inter- that interaction is perfect because it's great comedy, but it also gives you a great sort of place where these two characters are at odds with each other because they're father and son who didn't have a lot of interaction with each other, didn't do much together, but still have an inherent, almost like inherited uh, interest in archaeology. I, I love how that all plays out. Is like, they both sort of like geek out over different little things that they discover along the way of this grail quest. And this also, I mean, the main Nazi in this was such a, just a scumbag, not the main main bad guy, but the, you know, this is how we say goodbye in Germany. Dr. Jones, Uh, (laughs) that asshole. (laughs) Like this movie is just littered though, with just awesome characters. You Mm -hmm. got those two, you got Elsa, you got obviously Henry, Another one of my favorite bits ever is when um, she's like, he gave it to Marcus Brody. Don't worry, we'll find him. The hell you will. And he goes, see that, that whole thing like in blood did. And then it shows Marcus in the middle of the bazaar. Uh, excuse me, does, hello, does anyone speak English? Maybe even Greek? <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, I credit that, of course, Denholm Elliott uh, reprises oh, as Marcus Brody. Which, I've heard some people complain about, like, oh, they make Brody more of, like, a comedic foil character, but what I really like about Marcus is that in Raiders, he's obviously much more of, like, an academic, and he feels like he has more of, you know, a say-so and an authority when he's in the university, and then when you get him out into the field, he has sort of this goofiness where he doesn't know much about where to go, but he has a pure excitement and to go wherever he thinks he can go, like, especially the the whole ending of this movie, I think the the reason, honestly, I don't think we needed a fourth movie is just because the ending of this movie perfectly has everybody literally going on to the sunset, and when he's just like, come on, Indy, I know the way! He's like, he got lost in his own museum, didn't he? Yep. And they just go chasing after him, pretty much, to make sure he's getting lost in the middle of the fucking desert. (laughs) The, The music is swelling, they're in this beautiful desert, riding off, all of our heroes survive, they're all together, they're all better for it. And, uh, yeah, that should have just been end of the franchise. 
A hundred percent. But you know, as Hollywood tends to do, if something made money at one point, you got to bring it back. Yeah, if, if Harrison Ford made a lot of money being old once as Indiana Jones, and then once again as Han Solo, he's definitely coming back now that Disney owns fucking Lucasfilm. <laughs> right. And, you know, as Deckard has became a huge cult favorite, so we're going to make another one of those as well. Though also, obviously, credit to Jonathan Rhys-Davies as Sala, who also does show yep. up and has a bit more fun um, amongst those. And, of course, he has the great bit of dying laughing about the dog thing. So like, you're named I- after the dog? <laughs> I was just about to bring that part up. Which, of course, which of course is a big thing about um, the creation of, of the Indiana Jones character is that uh, Indiana was the name of George Lucas's Alaskan Malamute, um, who he also based the character of Chewie on for Star Wars. You know, I was doing a little bit of research into Indiana Jones, I or watching a documentary, whatever you want to call it. You know, just probably actually doing nothing, just having something just told to me. <laughs> but um, yeah, I remember when it, it was a documentary I saw. It was Steven Spielberg talking when he had read the original script for you know Raiders when George Lucas wrote, it. and George Lucas wrote Indiana Jones definitely more like a James Bond, mm-hmm. where he had a bunch of gadgets and all this goofy shit. And Spielberg went in and was like, no, 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 and toned it down to where it was just like the old adventure movies. And uh, just thank God Steven Spielberg had the voice of reason and got him to to tone it down because I don't think this would have worked at all if if it it's already has enough fantastical elements to them that by adding gadgets and you know technology and Tom Selleck it just ruined I don't think it would have lasted. No, that's part of the charm with the Indiana Jones character is the fact that he is in these fantastical situations and he's obviously very you know, intelligent and very equipped to fight, but at the same time he's also human. That's why, you know, the most infamous Indiana Jones bit is the whole sword fight thing in Raiders and he's just like, fuck it, <laughs> and shoots him. Like, that's, it, it makes you relate to this guy who's super intelligent and goes on huge ar- archaeological adventures. He's still a human at the same time and there's plenty of great moments with that here. Like, any of the bits where he's stuck with uh, his father and they're trying to get out of a situation, like, when they're tied together and the entire place is burning down, he's just like, Dad, what? Dad, what? (laughs) 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 The fireplace! It's stuff like that where they make a great uh, comedic duo at the same time they make a great sort of father-son. Another thing you said, too, about where, you know, he is just a guy. Indiana Jones gets his ass kicked a lot in these movies. Like... People beat the shit out of him, especially the big mechanic Nazi in uh, Raiders. I mean, beat his ass. Guys beat his ass in all these movies, but he's just, he's so, what makes him a tough guy is he just keeps moving forward. He keeps going. It's not about getting knocked down, it's getting back up again. Right. Yes, oh, of God, course. I thought, I thought you were going to do the whole... I'm not doing Chumbawamba here, okay? I was trying to... No, avoid... no, no, yeah, Chumbawamba. <laughs> <laughs> no, I thought you were going to do the Rocky Balboa speech. <laughs> Look, there's only one time I'll ever do that, and so I'll do the Rocky Four speech at some point. If you can change, then I can change. Anybody can change, Adam. Anyway. Oh, God. Um, hey, Polly, you know, I got you a, you know, this robot. Hey, it brings you a cake. Come on, Creed, Creed 2 better have that fucking robot in it. If, if it doesn't, then I'd boycott him. <laughs> yep. Better have that fucking robot. And give it the same care and attention they gave it in that movie. 
Happy birthday, Adonis. Happy birthday, Adonis. <laughs> we're going far. That's not actually what we're talking about right now. We're talking about Late Last Crusade, which we were talking about, obviously, the fight stuff. Um, what's your favorite action scene in the movie? Uh, I really, really like the boat scene. Mm-hmm. They're on the speedboats, you know, and they're getting the guys with the fezzes. And I just thought that it was really well done, especially when the boat starts getting chopped up by the propeller. Yes. And, you know, you're like, it's so tense. And uh, that guy's got him dead to rights. He doesn't care. He'll die. So no, and, I mean, it's and like, I love how that sequence ends where it is just like they, they stop like, holy shit, wait, you're here to pro- you're protecting the Grail in general. And he doesn't actually kill him. He just brings him back to shore and they just talk about like, well, God be with you in your quest and all this other stuff. I thought that was a really interesting, subversive way of ending a usual Indiana Jones like fight scene. Yeah, I agree. You know, no, yeah, exactly. They ended up to where it's like just almost with mutual respect. Yes. Like, you know, you do your thing. We're going to do ours. I think that's probably my favorite bit. What about yours? Um, you know, it, it's pretty close for me where I love the tank sequence because there's so much fun stuff going on. It's a great example of how Steven Spielberg builds up an action sequence of like, you got Indy fighting the Michael Byrne uh, main Nazi character, like on top of the tank and you got Henry inside of the tank and um, all the <laughs> the bit with the pen. I love the bit with the pen, less because Denholm Elliott says, like, oh, don't you see the pen? It's mine in the sword. And more that Sean Connery just shoves him to the side, like, there's no time for this, Marcus. Get right. the fuck out of my way. <laughs> <laughs> like, that bit's great. But also, a bit we haven't talked about, but I think really sort of crystallizes, like, being a better prequel than all of Temple of Doom is the opening with River Phoenix as young Indiana Jones is oh, spectacular. Wow. Fantastic is that. that that opening ten to fifteen minutes blows out when they did the entire run of the young Indiana Jones movies or TV series or whatever the hell it was. I don't. Well, I mean, that, that's this. what inspired the, those move. Those uh, that I know, series. and they yeah. couldn't even come close. No, not quite. <laughs> um, it, I mean, it, maybe if unfortunately River Phoenix hadn't passed, you might have been able to do a few a bit more stuff with him because he's such a great. Not just mimic of Harrison Ford, but fully embodying Harrison Ford just as a persona. And uh, he just has, like, I love the back and forth with the guy, with uh, his fellow Boy Scout, which is like, what are you going to do? I don't know. I'll think of something. And just the way that he moves his jaw, even, just like all the subtle mannerisms that make it just like, this is young Indiana Jones. And it feels so perfect. And it, it even does, like, all the stuff that you would, you know, for George Lucas, you would a decade later kind of be disappointed about with the Star Wars prequels. It reveals a bunch of stuff, but it doesn't feel terrible. It just feels like it is kind of spur of the moment, but it makes sense why he would have this little, like, the fear of snakes yeah. or even something subtle like how he the got wind. the scar. Yeah, how he got right. the, yeah, specifically the scar on his chin and all that stuff. It's it, it, it does it so well and fast and perfectly. And it's also just great comedic timing. Like, I love the scream River Phoenix does when he's in the snake pit. <laughs> It's uh-huh. so fucking funny. And then what a great transition too. With the hat, from, yes, perfect. Yeah, from that from the hat to the, him getting his ass whooped on at the boat, <laughs> you know. And it's the same object that he's going for again, yes. which is totally cool. This is one of my favorite, if if not my favorite all time sequel, for simply the fact that it pays homage to Raiders. Uh, but it doesn't just duplicate Raiders, you know, so it's not like it's just a serviceable sequel, like many of the Marvel sequels and stuff like that. It pays homage, but then it introduces new characters. It takes the existing characters in fun directions. 
there's I never felt like there's too much fan service moments in Last Crusade where it's like, remember, you liked this, remember? It just all felt natural to the characters. I think if you want to make a sequel, this is a good one to watch. Well, yeah, especially like the best fan service moment, maybe one of the best fan service moments in any movie is the bit where they're in the catacombs and you know the Elsa character sees the like Ark of the Covenant things like, is that the Ark of the Covenant? Yep. Do you know? I know. And then just keep on going. That's all you need. You don't need to dwell mm-hmm. on that. That's great. <laughs> it's always important to talk about sort of the MacGuffin for every Indiana Jones movie. The, the ones that work the best tend to be the ones where there is some sort of like connection to Indy's own quest in the individual movie. And for this one, it really is about like mortality and going back and like not regretting something about your past, uh, where in this case, you know, the Grail kind of connects to that with um, him, you know, and the Julian Glover character kind of conflicting and how one thinks, oh, Christ's cup is this big golden chalice. It's like, no, that's the cup of a carpenter, which is funny because Harrison Ford was a carpenter before he started acting. It's, right. It's cute. Wait a minute. Are you saying Harrison Ford is Jesus? Have you ever seen Harrison Ford and Jesus together in a picture? I think not. <laughs> <laughs> you ever seen Harrison Ford grow a beard out? It's not dissimilar. Right. But but no, would you agree with that in terms of the, the grail and its connection to that whole metaphor with him and his father and all that? Yeah, no, absolutely. In fact, like the first one with the Ark of the Covenant, I really like this one with the Grail. I don't know if it's because it's rooted in you know Christianity or Catholicism, but it, it's something that if you even want to do your own research, there is stuff out there about those two things. But mm-hmm. then when you get to the Kasari stones and the crystal skulls, it's just it's just bullshit. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I remember as a kid you know, watching Raiders and this one, like, what is this, you know, object? Oh, my God. And then being able to go to the library. Believe it or not, people used to do that for research outside of school. Um, Look, there's someone in this movie, it's like, libraries were real yes, child. They didn't just go to them to find (laughs) tombs underneath. There were actual things. Exactly. But being able to go back and, you know, research these items from these movies and and get the quote-unquote true history about them, to me, just added another level to these movies, and I, I think that's why I appreciate and love them so much to this day. And to go back here, saying I'm glad it was like the Holy Grail, and it really was probably because you know, Sean, Sean Con- his dad's older, and, you know, probably not going to be around much longer, so they don't have this time, and it's like right. they have such a strained relationship, and it's you know, do, do you reconnect? Do you even bother at this point, or do you just be who you guys have always been? And uh, I think it works perfect as a backdrop for the more dramatic heart of the story. Yeah, and especially having the actual, the knight character that's there guarding everything. I love that that guy, um, is Richard Edison, I believe is the actor's name, Did only was in one movie prior to this and then died like a couple years after, but he makes such an impression with so little time there. Yeah, he was mostly a stage actor, uh, but oh. I... I just I I love the when he like when Indiana Jones comes in after those trials which are amazing too. Those are such great little mini set pieces in building up to going into that that chalice and finding the grail and how he like tries to get out his sword and then falls over it's like you defeated me in battle and I give this sword to you. It's like yeah, yeah, where's the cup? Jehovah shot with an eye. Yes. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, those were great set pieces. I, I mean, I, those blew my mind when I was a kid. 
him walking across the the invisible bridge basically i mean i it blew my mind now you watch it, it i mean it still holds up the cg or whatever is really dated but it still holds up it's so exciting and thrilling and you know that the nazis are there right on his trail and when he throws the dust you know to, so he can still see the bridge on his way out the whole time i'm thinking oh no that means they can see it and walk across it easily you know, just you know they're out his ass, and it just made it so exciting. And, uh, of course, yeah. and, and Julian Glover is the perfect sort of evil businessman type, where especially when he talks to, um, I think it's to Henry Jones about just like, oh, you Nazis, you, your your scope is so small. Like I'm going to be <laughs> like have anything to do with these guys? He's um, you know a businessman going after this for selfish reasons, and you know getting uh, what he deserves with that great composite stuff which was the first digitally composited special effect where he is just like aging mm-hmm. rapidly which is still it was like, done really well yeah yeah mm-hmm. it's terrifying it's terrifying yeah, that's that actually did kind of scare me too when i was younger yes. um, especially when he grabs her and his eyes roll back in his head i mean it was but yeah that guy deserved it what a piece of shit mm-hmm. that guy was <laughs> he's no, he's no Belloc. Belloc to me is still my favorite, but yeah, he he deserved it. And then I love the whole thing of like trying to pass the Grail over the seal. Which Elsa, you fucking heard what the knight said. Come on, like you knew that wasn't gonna happen. <laughs> you know you're not gonna be able to get that past you, fucking idiot. Um, but everything collapsing in, and she tries to go for the Grail, and honey, I can't hold onto your hand. And now then, immediately it switched gears for Indy being down there. And his father saying Indiana instead of Junior for the first time in the whole movie. It's yeah. such a perfect illustration of the growth of Indiana Jones throughout this whole movie. Yeah, right. I know. You're God, that was a good scene. You know, yeah, let it go. Let it go. I still use that for internet clips. It's just like, let it go. <laughs> stop it. <laughs> just stop, please. Um, yeah, no. And then, like you said earlier in the discussion, and then it just ends on such a perfect note. Them just riding off into the sunset, you know, yeah, they don't have their item, but they still accomplish what they set out to do. The real holy grail was friendship. I fucking knew it. I knew as soon as I said it. As soon as I said they might, they, you know, might not have accomplished their quest. I knew it was coming. (laughs) The real twist of that joke was friendship. Briefly, before we uh, head off in the discussion, uh, shout out to the Hitler cameo, which is still a perfectly constructed sequence, too. Where yeah, he signs the diary. Yes, where, it's, where I love that's a great build-up to the joke, but also still while you're even in there, the fact that it's they're going off on this detour to find the journal, and there is a character-motivated thing between him and Elsa, where she's, she's trying to be like, I was only following orders. It's like, yeah, guess what? I, I can just squeeze your throat. I can just scream. Like, that interaction also was, does a really great job of, like, building up those two characters. And then it has the joke as well. It could have just been for the joke. There are sequences in, say, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull that kind of have that <laughs> and are lamer for it. But um, it, it's kind of why, like, the best sequence in, say, a Crystal Skull for me is still, like, the whole thing that goes from the soda shop to them being chased by the communists through the university. And it's because it's simple. And it doesn't need to be something yeah, over elaborate yeah. and stupid. Which is, I think, the lesson they should definitely take with this new one. And, like, Adam, what, what do you think they can do for a final outing with the Nina Jones? If they they are going to do it, what do you I think they should do for it? 
Oh, man, I don't know, for God's sakes. The thing is, uh, he's going to be in his 80s. What the hell is out there for him to try to find now? I'm not sure about the artifact necessarily, but I think the best route to go for, obviously, Indiana Jones works best when he fights Nazis, South American Nazis in the 60s. Yeah, I guess so. That's, I mean, if you're going to do it, yeah. I think Indiana Jones to goes down to South America to try and stop, like, the last vestiges of the Nazi party from trying to raise some sort of, like, artifact or maybe trying to find a fountain of youth, something that, like, really keys into, like, him and these Nazis are, like, the last vestiges of a dying generation. And him right. just going along on that trip and doing something that really does feel like it has finality to it. I think that's the perfect way to close all that out, if you're gonna do it. Now, would you would you end it by ending him? Would you just kill the character at the end? I mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily be opposed to that at this point, right. just because... You know, Harrison Ford's getting older, and God help us if they try and tease like Indiana Jones Six and the Geriatric Hospital. Right? Yeah, exactly. I'm hoping they don't go like a Mummy, Tomb of the Dragon Emperor route, where now he's got his son is full grown and basically just does what he does. Oh, I have a feeling Shia LaBeouf's not going to be anywhere near this. Oh no, they're not, no, he won't be in it. I guarantee that he's going to be retcon the fuck out. That's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping they just retcon out the fact that he even had a son. Mm-hmm. But who knows, man? I could see it definitely going that route, though. Because I think that honestly is what works more for Indy just as a character. Was He was always sort of this bachelor that kind of went around. He would have relationships with women, but at the same time, he was always someone who's like, no, I'm off on the chase, the quest, the journey. And I think doing that as more of a finality here, like even if you reference it, like I was married to Re- Marion for a bit, but it didn't work out. I just kept going everywhere and she left and i don't know my son died from a bad career we i don't know um just uh i think making him sort of on his own solo i think would probably work best for him at this point Um, i see what you did there you didn't realize you did it you did it uh no because uh he's so (laughs) i know right i'm referencing the frisco kid it's a great movie um (laughs) Good. We're Sabrina, getting a bit off, you know. Exactly. Um, yeah. <laughs> the Mosquito Coast. <laughs> the best Harrison Ford movie. Yeah, um, clearly. Six days, seven nights. Anyways, go ahead. We're not. All right, we got to stop quoting his IMDb page. And let's get to our final thoughts about Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Adam. Uh, as I said before, I think this is probably the perfect sequel. Um, it's definitely the perfect um, third movie. In a franchise. Uh, it should have been the final movie of this franchise. But um, it's just... You, Harrison Ford, I, I argued that this is his last attempt at giving a shit in a movie like this. Um, he really didn't... Maybe in the Jack Ryan movies, but... I'd he, also say still, The Fugitive. Oh, that's true. Yeah, I'll give you that one. But uh, Harrison Ford hasn't been this good in a long, long time. Um, Sean Connery was fantastic in it. It should have been a whole, the start of a whole career sort of change for Sean Connery. He should have stuck to doing, maybe doing roles like this where he's, you know, the seasoned older guy, just not really interested in fighting, not really interested in any of that, but just knows, you know, his shit. He's very worldly and wise. Um, Great acting 
all across the board in this movie. Great characters, great visual effects, great story, great dramatic flair, good comedic flair, um, amazing action set pieces. Like you brought up the tank thing. I mean, the whole horseback versus tank. I mean, how cool. Um, it's just, it's so well done that uh, I should have just ended with this. There should never have been a fourth one. Ever. How do you go on from something this good and attempt to even compete? And especially with as much of a gap in between. It's just, it, it's just, this should have been it. It would have ended beautifully. Yeah. I, I echo pretty much all of that. Uh, it's definitely the best sequel Mr. Spielberg has ever done. Um, I think because there is something more that connects him with the idea of it being, you know, this father-son relationship, obviously that's a common thing in his movies, is sort of the strange relationship with a father and a son. Uh, that That's a big part of, I think, what makes this really work. While at the same time, all it, it really is a great uh, hanger for to put the coat of all the other like great visual effects stuff and um, the other characters that either come back or newly integrated in here. Um, it, it definitely it feels like the best sort of successor to Raiders, which I would still say is the best uh, overall Indiana Jones movie and one of just the best action adventure films of all time. But it is a worthy follow-up and definitely uh, one of the better examples of how to do a sequel in general, for sure. But um, speaking of sequels and maybe more tentative connections... Our next feature is Shock Treatment. Say ah! That's very good. Hello, I'm Dr. Cosmo McKinley. I'd like to tell you about a new film from the gang that gave you the Rocky Horror Show. Shock Treatment. You need to be the Get to jumping like a real life wire. You'll be pathetically crazy about shock treatment. Trust me, I'm a doctor. <laughs> so, oh, so, so shock treatment is uh, sort of a sequel to the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Um, the obviously we should talk a bit about uh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Uh, one of the most successful cult films of all time, very beloved um, musical uh, from Richard O'Brien and director Jim Sharman, who reprised those roles in here, and also Richard O'Brien appears in the movie along with several people, uh, though it only is really connected in terms of Brad Majors and Janet Majors, who were in the original film, are now here married, and uh, are in the town of Denton, USA, which is at the very beginning, uh, during the whole Damn It Janet number of Rocky Horror, and uh, they are sort of seduced into this TV studio slash conglomerate of some sort that um, basically takes over their lives and puts one of them in a shoddy mental health facility that's also in this TV studio while making Janet a big star at the same time. And uh, before we go into the move, this movie a bit more, I guess, uh, Adam, what's your uh, connection to the Rocky Horror Picture Show? Are you a Rocky fan? I mean, I am now... I wasn't when I was younger. I don't think I got it. But I also had an uncle who was really, really into it. And he probably oversold it for me. Plus, that's not really a movie for young, young kids. You're not going to pick up on any of it. At least I didn't. And I'm not really a musical fan. In fact, I'm not a musical fan at all. So it definitely wasn't really my, up my alley. But as I got older, I've met a couple more people who really liked it. 
Um, I never really went back and revisited it till I got married, and it's one of my wife's all-time favorite movies. So I'm a fan of it now. That being said, being a fan of that movie, which is considered cult classic and a decent movie, and a lot of people love the music in it, to go for me to go to that one, which I wasn't really a fan of, to this one was like torture for me. Because <laughs> it's just this fucking movie. What about you and Rocky Horror? I mean, I assume you're a fan. Um, I do really enjoy Rocky Horror. Um, interestingly, I first discovered it not in the big crowd setting, but I did watch it initially on video. I'm what the Rocky Horror fan base would call initially a masturbator in that sense. Ah, um, that's what they yeah. refer to that as. Um, and then seeing in the live experience, it's interesting because I still do appreciate the movie on its own. Obviously it gets a lot of criticism for being like not that well put together because obviously it is amateurish in a lot of ways. But uh, the songs are all pretty great and obviously the big thing that shock treatment is missing that works about that movie is tim curry having oh, a strong central sort of figure to tie everything together because you could easily see without someone as strong as tim curry in that role of frankenfurter the whole thing would really fall apart and that i think definitely is the case with shock treatment though while i don't think shock treatment is that great a movie here I would argue that there are a lot of interesting elements that make Shock Treatment the perfect kind of movie to remake. Because I think it was very sort of um, prescient in terms of predicting a lot of stuff about reality television, um, mental health institutions that are still kind of shoddy to this day. And quite frankly, this movie predicted the Trump era pretty hard. Like, watching it, there's ah. so much of that, like, really, like, prescient satire, I think, in this movie, I would argue. I mean, yeah, I could see that. I, I, I mean, I let's put it this way. I see where you're going with it. You know, the thing is, I can honestly, I'll admit, I wasn't examining it that hard because I just, I couldn't get into the movie, period. Mm-hmm. So it, it was really hard for me to sit and watch it with a, you know, discerning eye and, and take it apart and, you know, find the subtext in a lot of things because I just, eh, it was like just grating in my eardrums, <laughs> you know. Um, I do like Richard O'Brien. I've, I liked him in Rocky Horror. He's fun here. Um, I love him in Dark City. Um, Jessica Harper, you know, tries to take over for Susan Sarandon. She does okay. Well, I, but, I would argue she's not really taking over as much as she's playing a very different Janet, which I think is yeah, purposeful. Uh, right, uh, be- yeah. Because Janet in the Rocky Horror movie was definitely much more of, like, young and naive and free-spirited, and then obviously by the end of that movie she becomes wild and sex-obsessed like everybody else does. Versus here, right. this is a Janet who's been married to the sort of still milk-toast Brad for so long and feels so bored with her life and her relationship with him, and then all of a sudden goes into sort of becoming was ostensibly a Kardashian <laughs> um, in uh, really just propelling her into this much more selfish attitude that gives her a lot more sort of like, you know, spotlight and attention, but at the same time doesn't give her a lot of like pure actual attention that Brad was at least trying to give her. Though still, I think that's also a big problem. It's just that Clifton Young as Brad, just the, what worked about say Barry Bostwick as Brad is that he has sort of an ego and um, a confidence, but it's all misaimed right. 
versus Brad is like a blank dull slate in this movie. So yeah, he's so boring. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, he, it's just the thing you don't care. No, and, and the whole you're supposed to really be like invested in what's going on with Brad and what's happening to him, and then, and then when he's playing the other character, um, Farley flavors. Yeah, Farley Flavors. He's so over the top and ridiculous that it's like, I just want this fucking guy out of my face. Like, I I don't want to see this guy in either way. He's way too boring and then way too over the top. It's just... Now, I I understand Barry Boswick had scheduling conflicts or whatever, but I would have think, honestly, if they would have brought him back, and it could have only just been him, and I think the character would have worked out a lot better. Mm-hmm. Both versions of it, mm-hmm. I think he'd be really fun as as both versions as, as especially as Firely Flavors. I think he'd be turning a really you know hammy, goofy, but still decent performance. But yeah, Cliff the Young, oh boy! I, and the whole time I'm looking at him, I'm like, where do I know this fucking guy from? And he's been in a lot, but the I, I the only thing I really remember him for is the substitute with Tom Berenger. He gets his ass kicked at that by high alive balls. Well, there's all, I remember him also from The Hunger with Susan Sarandon. Holy fuck, yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> See, I'll slightly disagree on the Farley Flavors part. I think he's obviously being over the top, but I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing for this movie. It's obviously very over the top. If anything, it was more interesting finding out that apparently they had offered that and the Brad role to Tim Curry but he rejected it mainly for the Brad part because he didn't feel he could pull off an American accent, which, if it's anything like his Congo Russian accent, I would have fully been on board <laughs> for him doing that. <laughs> yeah. What, that would have been so odd, though, and jarring. I mean, it would have made sense in the universe of these two movies, but still, that would have been kind of even more bizarre, I think. And I, honestly, I'm glad he didn't do it. I mean, I think, if anything, the bigger problem is just that the reason I think this, if you were to remake this movie uh, proper, uh, I don't think you really need to connect it to Rocky Horror. I think that kind of, that expectation, that connection, I think if anything kind of drains the movie more of being something interesting on its own. And if you were to just not have it be Brad and Janet, just have it be typical American couple instead, right. and not have really that connection to Rocky Horror, I think it would honestly work far better. Um, because I I think there's there's stuff to parse out here. Like even some of the songs I think have really great satiric bite to them. Like the Denton song at the beginning, I think mm-hmm. has a lot of that where it is just like spoofing a, a typical a America all the way America first basically to the point of having stuff like tolerance for the ethnic races, and then later on you have that whole comment about Mexican culture. Uh, where they're just like, oh, your father hates Mexicans, and all this other stuff. That stuff, I think, has so much modern satiric bite to it that could, I I think, really where I think that's mostly, though, in the first half of this movie. When it gets to the second half, and it's a lot more of just like, oh, look, we're having our big presentation, and we have the Oscar drill and the Bits guys performing. A a great song that just has no place in here at all. (laughs) There's, I think... Part of that is because this was originally written as a more direct Rocky Horror sequel called uh, Rocky Horror Shows His Heels that was going to include, like, you know, the Frankenfurter character and Rocky and everybody else, like, more explicitly. And these songs were kind of taken from there after Tim Curry said he didn't want to reprise Frankenfurter and recontextualize. And I think um, that's definitely 
they do some better than others in terms of contextualizing some of the stuff. Did you like any of the numbers in the in the movie? Uh, I like the Dentonville one um, as well. It, it, that didn't bother me uh, too bad. Uh, I liked the uh, I can't think of the name of it. I don't know the name of the song, obviously, but the one um, the father sang, I thought was pretty decent. I mean, he's a total, you know, racist pos, but still. Yeah, I mean the songs. The thing with the songs is they're they're all done well. They're all decent, you know, sang well enough. To, but it's just, you know, to the un untrained non musical film fan ear, it just sounded like more Rocky Horror songs. Like, mm-hmm. if it, it almost beats the way they were arranged to everything. It's just I didn't, and I think that's one of the big problems with this movie. It's it's Rocky Horror to a lesser degree in almost every way. And it's, uh, yeah. So, I mean, I didn't hate, like none of the musical numbers made me like want to punch myself in the ear or anything, but you know, they were okay. I, I, I guess they served the, their purpose. Yeah. I, I think they definitely could have cut down some of them at the same time though. And I think more importantly, cut down on some of the characters, because there are some that are just, like, completely unnecessary. And if anything, kind of duplicate over. Like, there's the uh, Barry Humphreys, also known as Dame Edna, um, plays this uh, this character named uh, Bert Schick, uh, who was supposed to be Dr. Scott, but then they changed it to, obviously, this character instead. Um, that could honestly just be combined with, like, the Cosmo character, um, the the war which O'Brien plays. Like, there, there's so yeah. many times watching this movie where it's just, like, you could easily just consolidate these characters and make it a thing a lot more tight because that works for Rocky Horror where part of the fun is just like people keep coming out of the woodwork you're like who the fuck is this sure meatloaf come out here and do a song with a saxophone fine right. that's that that works here but this is trying to I think be more of a it's it's trying to be more of like a concrete satire of um specifically like a lot of this you know corporate culture stuff and it works so much better when it is something simple like a, a musical number I loved and I'm sure you might not have been a fan of was uh, the bitchin in the kitchen song where they talk to their, like, these advertisements for different household yeah. items. And, yeah. th- and and they do it as just, like, this sort of thing where they're, like, trying... They can't find a connection with each other, so they're trying to find it in these household products that keep being sold. I just love that, especially when, like, they're thrown different items that they're not sure how to rhyme with. Like, the bit where Brad sees, like, oh, trash can, uh, don't you put the dirt on me? <laughs> Like, I love bits like that, where it's clearly satirizing a lot of that sort of corporate culture at the time, and the obsession with capitalist marketing. Just, like I said, if you timed it to st- more stuff like that, and less of, there's a song called This Is The Me Of Me, which is literally yeah. just like, me, 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 that's that's such a lame song. that <laughs> doesn't really work, and it's just so more on the nose than it needs to be. <laughs> yes, I, I agree. And the thing is, too, you got... The nurse character was kind of, I mean, we know why she was there. So so they could show her butt, you know, Nell, little Nell or whatever. Yeah. She's Columbia, right? She was Columbia. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it's completely unnecessary. And I do, I did, like I said, I did like Richard O'Brien and um, his sister slash wife slash girlfriend, whatever the hell they were supposed to be. <laughs> Patricia um, Quinn, yes. Yeah, Magenta, yeah. Uh, they were both really good in it, I, but other than honestly, other than those two, I just found the rest of the characters to either be annoying or boring. 
I love Charles Gray, but he, him and his love interests are completely unnecessary to the movie. It, it definitely feels like this was sort of lost in various rewrites, which it was. Yeah, you could definitely tell that it was started off as something completely different. And then through God knows how many rewrites, we ended up with this. And I, I, I mean, let's be honest, it, it was a bomb. Even more so than Rocky Horror. Well, only because they tried to market it in the same way as Rocky Horror, which is such a big mistake. But they're like, the week of Halloween, they did midnight shows only. Which is like, that. that's not giving the movie a fair chance at all. <laughs> no, to be Right, but to be fair, honestly, I think if it would have been done a different way, I still think it would have been a bomb. Mm-hmm. It's, just, it's just not a well-constructed movie. Yeah. At all. I don't even think this one really has a cult following, does it? Not nearly as much as, like, a Rocky Horror, no. Um, it, it definitely has a much sort of smaller contingent. I mean, it's been actually, uh, there's been a few things done with it in terms of, they've tried to do, like, the shadow cast stuff. It hasn't obviously been nearly as popular as Rocky Horror when they do that. Uh-huh. There was even a stage adaptation that was sort of, like, off the West End in London, which I've heard actually consolidates a lot of this stuff and kind of does what I'm talking about in terms of shaving a few musical numbers off and consolidating the characters and making it more of a a satire for our modern age. And I think that's honestly the way to go. I think this is... People bring up the idea of remaking something and it's usually just a movie that doesn't really need to be remade at all because it's already good the first time. This is the perfect kind of movie to do that with where there's a lot of interesting ideas, there's cool concepts that just weren't done right because of like a lack of cohesion or a budgetary problem. I think that's what would make this like really work if you were to take somebody who took a lot of those ideas and turned it into something a bit more concise and a bit more, you know, streamlined, I think you could make a great movie out of this movie. No, I agree with you. And I, I, I feel that those are the only type of movies that should be remade. The, the ones that weren't done right the first time. If it was done right, I remake it. There's no point. Just to see a worse attempt, because nine times out of ten, that's exactly what you get. I, I mean, I could... I don't think they're going to... I don't think this one would ever get remade, though, to be honest with you. I don't think there's a high enough demand for it because it, it's, it would be... A lot of it would be so relevant that I don't think... I think people would be afraid to even release it. Potentially, but that's why we need the brave souls out there to do it, Adam. That's why we need it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, give Ted Turner a call or whoever the fuck. <laughs> well, it's Fox, so I guess Disney now? Disney. You're remaking yeah, movies all the time. Call. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, put Mr. Disney on the phone. <laughs> Hello, Mr. Mouse? Yes, shock yeah, treatment? Right. I know, right? You were thinking of it too? Let's do it. Um, <laughs> um So let's go, I guess, into our final thoughts then on shock treatment, Adam. I mean, my final thought on this is I was, honestly, I was bored from pretty much beginning to end. There's a couple fun performances in it. You know, a couple of catchy numbers, but all in all, it's a pale imitation of a flawed movie. I, I said it on our musical episode. You know, the musical genre is my absolute least favorite type of movie. So this already had that going against it for me. So am I the best to take a look at this critically and objectively? Probably not. But um, nevertheless, I, I just I, I find it boring and there's not much in it there for me. I will say this is the second time I'd seen it, and I think I was more in your camp the first time I saw it, um, in terms of more just I was kind of confused by what it was trying to aim for, and I think now I can see what it's aiming for. It's just a problem more that's aiming it in all sort of different directions, 
And it's like I said, I think this is the perfect kind of a movie to take the original ideas of and a lot of the cool concepts and start turning into something a bit more um, consolidated and concise. And I think you would have a very interesting satire of our modern age that it is sort of that it ended up predicting in a lot of cases. Like there's one moment that we didn't talk about that I think perfectly crystallizes sort of like the reality show TV nature of it, where they're the Cosmo character and all that. They're talking to Janet and she's like, Oh, let me go home and I'll think about your whole offer to make me a star. And it's like home. Oh no, you're, you, you wouldn't be going home. You would be staying here this whole time. Right. And you would come like, we would basically have you at our beck and call to come out and just do whatever you wanted. And that is, very true to reality television. Like, my favorite line of the whole movie is her coming out, just like, I just wanted to come in and tell you how fabulous I am, which is yeah. very prescient of sort of Instagram oh, culture, yeah. especially. Um, like I said, it's it's worth watching if nothing else for, I think the first half has a lot of, like, the more interesting biting satire. And then from there, it feels very loose and feels like it just kind of goes off into nowhere. But I, I would say I like most of the songs. I have some of these songs, like, on my phone and, like, playing them, especially, like, the, the Denton or the, even as much as it doesn't fit, the Breaking Out song. I think it's just a great um, rock song on its own. Um, even there's a song where Clip the Young duets with himself, which, as much as we criticize his performance, it's actually a pretty well-done duet <laughs> on his own but but yeah uh, as it still stands it is a very flawed movie that i think someone else could kind of take and restructure to make something of its own if anything i want i'm more curious about that stage production that came out like a couple years ago i'd be very curious to see that and how it kind of takes this stuff and turns into something more of the time i'd imagine that probably be a pretty entertaining spectacle to see on that note, uh, that ends our discussion. Uh, we want to read some feedback from people who we asked about favorite and least favorite sequels. Uh, Don Chambers says, Favorite, Captain America the Winter Soldier and T2, Blunders, Blues Brothers 2000, and Mortal Kombat Annihilation. Yeah. I, yeah. Uh, yeah, he's are... dead on about all of those. <laughs> yep. Um, <laughs> Carrot Holden says, uh, T2 is probably one of the best sequels of all time. Worst, probably Jeepers Creepers 3. Um, I never saw 3. I didn't feel like giving that shit any money or any of my time so yeah dick yourself isn't yeah. someone who i want to give much time to <laughs> I don't no think not at there. all not unless it's a good solid beating i didn't like jeep the dreepish creepers movies period though i think they're probably some of the the worst modern franchise or I like franchise two, actually i think two had a pretty fun idea with like they're all stuck on the bus yeah but uh, i still don't like it i, don't I mean know. it's not that great though yeah i, I agree yeah. Um, Will Torres says, uh, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey is underrated. Last Crusade is my favorite Indiana Jones movie. Um, I have a soft spot for Clerks 2 as well. But, uh, the Matrix sequels were probably the most disappointing films for me personally. That's when I realized that you should never even have hope for anything. Life, love, faith. I lost all of them. <laughs> well, well, that's... <laughs> sorry, Will. Good God. Uh, <laughs> you know, I have a soft spot for Clerks 2 as well. Um... There's a couple scenes in that that still make me laugh, but I, it's hard for me anymore to go back to watch Kevin Smith movies. Mm-hmm. He has just let me down so many times recently to where it's like it's even kind of soiled his previous work for me. Uh, plus, I mean, most of it's just fat boy bro humor, like mall rats and, you know, it's just they don't hold up either. Like, I tried to watch Jay and Silent Bob strike back again. Oh, my God. Well, I would say Mallrats in that it's it's less that and it's more sort of, like, 
geek humor that would kind of be taken and corrupted with something like a Gamergate, especially Mallrats, fucking Brody is essentially a Gamergater. <laughs> or a comic skater, literally now, yeah. in, in the more relevant He's sense. Awful. Yeah. It, it it doesn't hold up quite that well. Uh, but more of the stuff that he's talking about, uh, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey is a very underrated sequel. That's just, just weird shit. And I kind of love it for that. <laughs> oh, yeah. It go, it does whatever the hell. It goes off the wall. Mm-hmm. That movie just goes crazy. Um, I hated it when I was younger, but I watched it recently. And, and I really like it, especially... Um, I can't think of his name. Colonel Stewart from Die Hard. William he's Sadler is deaf. Yes, yeah, amazing. William Sadler, he's so good. He's so fun in it. <laughs> like it's worth it for that performance alone. Yes, I hope he comes back in Bill and Ted Face the Music. Oh God, <laughs> I don't. I hope nobody does. We don't need that. I don't know. I'm I'm not against doing Bill and Ted Face the Music because of that. That premise is so clever that they're apparently doing where it's like the Wild Stallions was supposed to be like the thing that took over the world essentially. But they're in their middle age, and it's like, wait, it hasn't happened yet. What happened? <laughs> Why hasn't it still happened yet for us? That's a great idea. I didn't know that's what it was about. So, okay. Well, maybe a little bit more. I can, I can handle it. But, but speaking yeah. of Keanu, yeah, Matrix sequels. Not the best. Awful. Fucking awful. And no way. There is no way in hell that you can tell me that the Wachowskis wrote all three of those at the same time as they claim to have done. Yeah. There's no way. <laughs> There's such a total shift between the first and the second one. And Agent Smith was fucking dead at the end of the first one. They were not going to bring back that character. Well, even then, The Matrix ends on such a dope note where he's like in, inside the phone booth, just like, wherever you are, I'll find you. And then goes up into the air. It's like, I, you don't need another movie. That's great. <laughs> that's no, a- that was perfect. You get what's about to happen. He's about yep. to bring the whole fucking system down. Yep. That's great. We don't need any more. <laughs> no. No. Just all the techno jargon bullshit speak get the fuck out of here with this yeah anyways go ahead god damn fuck the <laughs> our next feedback before adam loses himself uh comes from brian kane who says aliens godfather part two empire strikes back naturally but fury road as loose a sequel as it is has been a serious contender for just my favorite film of all time jesus what force it is blade runner 2049 was my favorite of last year too as for worst Terminator Genesis still kind of burns, even though I expected it. The direct-to-video Starship Trooper sequels are pretty awful. Those are the only non-obvious ones I can think of. Um, yeah, Genesis. Oh my god, Oof. what a shit fest. For especially a series that, like, with every sequel post-T2, you think, like, oh, that's the worst they can do. And then Genesis is like, no, we, we got a crater. I'm definitely going to be the one guy. Well, I'm not the one guy. I know a couple other people. I'm not too mad at Salvation. I actually kind of like Terminator Salvation. I hate that they ruined the twist in the previews, but I still kind of like the movie as as what it is. I hate Rise of the Machines, and I think Genesis or Genesis or Fuck You, whatever the hell you want to call it, <laughs> Terminator it, Fuck You is a more appropriate title. <laughs> basically, Terminator Go Fuck Yourself. This um, it, to me, it's just it's it's an abomination of a movie. It's a horrible film. Well, yeah, especially because, like, Salvation, like you're talking about, I give credit for at least really doing something off the beaten path for Terminator, which is going to that sort of future, um, which I don't, I personally thought it was an interesting idea that didn't execute very well, but I can at least say it did try something different versus Genesis, the biggest problem is just, like, it is total nostalgia wanking in your face. Oh, hard. Remember this? 
Remember this? Jai Courtney and Amelia Clark. Yep, terrible as well. Oh, the fucking just zero chemistry. And poor Arnold is trying, but he can't do it. He just can't save this movie at all. No, God, no. It's it's terrible. All right, all right fuck. And then the new one coming. Get, get Stop it. All right, yeah, just stop, uh, stop with the Terminator. But I'll definitely agree about Fury Road. That's probably the best example of, like, a delayed sequel there's been. Yeah in a while oh yeah absolutely like that and Blade Runner 2049 are like two great examples of how to do that yes I agree Uh, Blade Blade Runner was also my favorite of last year Um, I loved that movie yeah Fury Road though god what just a masterpiece of action movie storytelling it's so well done plus the Mad Max movies do tend to be kind of loose in terms of really a continuity like oh 100% yeah yeah the only because, thing constant through them is Max himself. Right. And, and even then, he is very right. much sort of like this mysterious mythological character who is like going around and as introduced in two, just being like this, the road warrior who wanders the wastelands and helps right, out people. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Our next. <laughs> the next one, please do. <laughs> um, our next feedback comes from. Uh, Mirab with Sales Unfurled, who is at Elwood underscore Tiberius on Twitter, who says, uh, I have a love-hate relationship with Hellboy 2. It's absolutely beautiful in terms of production, creature design, etc., but holy crap, the writing, and also Seth MacFarlane. Star Trek 2, on the other hand, is the greatest of all time goat of sequels. Star Trek 3 is also undeservedly underrated because of this. Yeah, I, actually, I, I do really like Star Trek 3, and I think people just kind of yeah, gave it crap. Just because it's like the odd number sequel bullshit, which I don't yeah. think is true, really, because I think two, three, and four are like the great Star Trek trilogy of movies, like the very consistent. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I like Search for Spock a lot, man. I think I don't think there's ever been a better clean on either than Christopher Lloyd. <laughs> yes, and of course Shatner's great line: "I have had enough of you." Yeah, <laughs> just let the boy go. Take me. No! <laughs> Why? Because you wish it. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, Christopher Lloyd yelling, Get out of there! No! <laughs> I know, <it's> so stupid. <laughs> um, I'm not mad at Hellboy 2. I like Hellboy 2. Um, I don't really get the writing thing. I think it's, you know, it's Hellboy. It's And Seth MacFarlane didn't really bother me either too much. Yeah, he's, uh, he's, yeah, I I prefer yeah, I, Hellboy two to one for sure. I think too. Hellboy Hellboy one it feels a lot more like a generic blockbuster, and two feels like okay, Del Toro, you made a pretty good earner on DVD. Go make whatever the fuck you want, and he did. And uh, now it doesn't matter because we're not getting that third one, and we're getting whenever David Harbour's being. Yeah, whatever Neil Marshall's about to shout out. Uh, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. January perfect time. <laughs> Oh, oh god, is that what it's coming out? Is yep, January? in January. <laughs> oh, 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 oh no. That's dumping grounds. <laughs> they have no yeah. faith in that movie. Especially because we haven't heard anything since like the first pictures came out like a year ago, I think. Nothing. No. No pictures, other cast members, no pic- nothing. So yeah, they have zero faith in that one. Yes. Um, then Nate Thomas uh, has a huge list of favorites and least favorites, so we'll just speed through these lists right here. Uh, he says, favorites, Superman 2, 
Spider-Man 2, Avengers Infinity War, Captain America Winter Soldier, Empire Strikes Back, Aliens, Terminator 2, The Godfather 2, Blade Runner 2049, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, John Wick 2, Die Hard 2, Night of the Museum Battle of the Smithsonian, and Predators. Hell? I, I know <laughs> one of these <laughs> things is not like the other. Um, <laughs> and then worst ones, The Last Jedi, Terminator 3, Major League, Back to the Miners, Predator 2, The Godfather 3, The Matrix sequels, Spider-Man 3, Iron Man 3, Spy- Superman 4, The Quest for Peace, Son of the Mask, and Crystal Skull. I agree with most of these. Uh, I would probably take Last Jedi and yeah. Predator 2 off that list. I mean, I actually agree with all of them other than those two. I, I, I think Iron Man 3 gets shit on too much. Oh no, it gets shit on just enough. I, 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 I don't I think that people should shit on it that much. I I don't think it's that terrible. Don't ever pick it. Don't ever pick it. I'll quit. (laughs) You say that every time. Uh, Oh, man, my my back pocket's getting full for some reason over here. Anyway, um, our last guest on the show, Tori DePina, also did a similar thing of a list of uh, favorites and least favorites, so we'll run through that once again. Uh, Spider-Man 2, Godfather 2, Aliens, Empire, Die Hard 3, Predator 2, Halloween 2, Matrix Reloaded, Iron Man 3, Winter Soldier, T2, The Dark Knight, Skyfall, Evil Dead 2, Clerks 2, Bad Boys 2, Chronicles of Riddick, Rock, Rocky 2, X2, Devil's Rejects, Star of the Planet of the Apes, Tron Legacy, Toy Story 2 and 3, Kill Bill Volume 2, Hellboy the Golden Army, The Two Towers, and Death Wish 2 for best sequels. Oh man, lord. <sighs> okay. And then, <laughs> worst... Iron Man 2, Son of the Mask, Species 2 slash 3, Avid Almighty, Break Into, Electric Boogaloo, Sin City 2, Die Another Day, Rocky 5, X3 The Last Stand, Revenge of the Fallen, Transformers, uh, Matrix Revolutions, Men in Black 2, uh, S. Darko, Be Cool, and Death Wish 5. Ugh, Tori, goddamn. Right, good God. (laughs) Uh, Okay, I agree with a lot of those. But he's got some in the best that should definitely be in the other list. <laughs> like Halloween 2. Well, well, with Halloween 2, I don't know which one he's talking about. <laughs> it dep- Well, it depends. If he's talking about the original, I don't think it's one of the worst. It's not one of the best. No, it's definitely just it's in the good. middle. Like, just like It's a movie it's that just, exists. It exists, right. <laughs> if it's the Rob Zombie one, yeah, it definitely, definitely should be in the worst. <laughs> Matrix Reloaded, Iron Man 3. Skyfall, Chronicles of Riddick. Well, I mean, Chronicles of Riddick, really, Tori? <laughs> Get the fuck out of here. I, I wouldn't be against him with Skyfall, either. See, I don't like Skyfall. I can't. Mm. St- I couldn't stand it. I thought it was so boring. Mm. And I'm a James Bond fan. I, I liked... I really liked Casino Royale. Quantum Solace yeah. was boring, as well. Well, you know, I'll take Skyfall over Spectre. I'll give yeah, you that. Yeah, yeah, motherfucking Spectre. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say. Uh, yeah. Well, right on, Tori. That's a hell of a list with a bunch of shit on it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for being on the show as well, Tori. <laughs> oh, yeah, that too. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, we want to thank a few people before we go out. Uh, thanks to Chris Oliver for the music used in our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Emily Scarta for the art for our show. She accepts commissions at Fiverr with two rs.com slash ee scarta. Um, you can find us on Twitter at dedbpod, and also that's a Facebook page uh, for us, and doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com. 
Um, you can email us any kind of feedback you have, and of course, uh, you can follow us on our own individual accounts on Twitter. I am at not the who's Tommy and Adam Malkith fan six nine six nine, all one word, baby. Yes, yes, that, that's, that is, that's very true. That is, that is a fact, in, indeed, it is. Um, and we want to encourage you all to definitely. Uh, subscribe to us on iTunes and rate review us to give the show more visibility. And once again, if you are a U.S. resident and you give us an iTunes review that you email to doubleedgedevilbell at gmail.com, uh, just send us a photo of that particular uh, review that you did, and we will send you a free sticker pack if you're in the U.S. that has little uh, stickers of our logo and everything. Um, it's a yep. pack of like four, right, Adam? Yep, four. You'll get uh, two. There's two designs. You get two of each. Yes. Uh, and you know, like we said before, throw them on your traffic keeper, on your car, put them on those sweet electrical, big, giant metal electrical boxes right by your apartment. You know, just go <laughs> put them on your forehead, put them over old man Higgins' locks on his front door, just to mess with him. <laughs> do, do what you got to do. Damn just kids in the double edged double bill stickers. <laughs> right. Hey, God damn it. <laughs> well, that's the end of another entry in the double edged double bill franchise, and we will see you. On our next adventure. Well, this is how we say goodbye on Double Edge Double Bill. <laughs> Talks in his sleep.